0: Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro X. Visit studionetworksolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. And welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hulfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in Film and TV. In this episode, I'm talking with Walter Murch, A.C.E. Murch has been nominated and has won dozens of awards, including Ace Eddies, Oscars, BAFTAs, and Emmys. His IMDb page lists 66 films over six plus decades. In our previous conversation, we talked about his current project, the documentary Coup 53. As we sat in a screening room waiting for that film to start, we talked about five movies that he'd asked me to watch and that he felt had interesting stories to tell. They're not the films you might think of, though the classic merch-edited films are definitely in the group. In the next 45 minutes or so, we chat about his first film as a picture editor, The Conversation, his previous documentary, Particle Fever, as well as Romeo is Bleeding, The Talented Mr. Ripley, and The Godfather. In two more upcoming interviews with Merch recorded that same night, I asked follow-up questions about things I wanted clarified from his book In the Blink of an Eye and in his book with Michael Ondaatje called The Conversations. And then we'll wrap things up with questions asked by Art of the Cut readers from Blue Collar Post Collective. Trust me, there will be a treasure trove for Walter Merch fans and editors in general. Right. So between not printing everything and now digital and now you get everything does that make it harder or easier?
1: It's easier for the director, (laughs) largely, and it's somewhat easier for the script supervisor, but it's harder for the editor. And I should just qualify by saying that the way Francis shoots certain scenes, and the conversation is one of them, is he makes it as if it's a documentary. So people have identities, they have dialogue, sometimes they're allowed to improvise. And the scene is set and he just launches the actors into it and covers it with multiple cameras. And at the end of a take, he decides, this is all before video tap, so he has to kind of intuit what's going on. Uh, He decides, okay, I'll do another take or I'll move the cameras into a secondary position and ask them to do it again mm-hmm. and this generates uh, as you can imagine a huge amount of material so when i received the dailies on the conversation from the conversation which is to say the the people oh, walking around the in beginning Union of the square movie. it was a little overwhelming for me uh, this is the first feature film that i had picture edited And I don't know what I had expected, but I wasn't expecting a kind of fusion of documentary and fiction. Mm. So I had to do a a grid map of all of the dialogue, and then all of the different cameras on a kind of X, Y coordinates, and then say, this line of dialogue is covered on this camera, and this line of dialogue isn't, and then I had a grading system of it's covered and it's very good, or it's covered and it's a little sketchy. So it was kind of like a Sudoku game. <laughs> and um, But it was very valuable because the only films I had edited before that were documentaries. So I kind of flipped my mind into that mode. And Francis did the same thing... Um, earlier on the wedding scene of the converse, of the Godfather mm. which was simply a wedding and everyone had their identities and the multiple cameras rolled and the same thing on apocalypse now with the attack on the Valkyries which was much uh, much more daunting physically because the cameras were mounted in helicopters and it it you, you had much, even there, much less control over it. So you would shoot 10 minutes, which is all the camera could hold at that time, and then go back to base camp, decide where and whether to move the cameras. So um, it it I got early on inoculated to a lot of footage for a scene. Mm. And that kind of kept me in good shape. <laughs> editorially, so I, I, I was challenged early and I adapted my techniques to deal with that. Because of the, the cost of film, um, in those days you would have uh, two streams. There would be print and what might be called B negative, meaning hold it. And maybe we'll use it, but, but only if we get into trouble on, with the printed takes. So, I don't know, the, the film, the ratio would probably be out of seven takes. Uh, maybe three would be printed. Um, there's a rule of thumb uh, regarding that, which is that uh, the next to last take is usually the best take. Even though the director prints the last take, and that's due to the psychological interaction of actors and directors, where the director is fishing for something, and he sees the progress of the actors. If it's a multiple actor uh, scene with multiple actors, oh, it's getting good. No, no, it's uh, the fourth take wasn't so good. Now the fifth take is good. Sixth take is even better. Um, Let's do another take. And if the seventh take is not so good, what's impossible to say is, okay, uh, print take six, but don't print take seven. Because the actors will say, what, what was the matter with the last one? <laughs> so you, you naturally print take seven, and you say, great, let's move on. Next setup. And either the director will imply or leave it unstated that um, the sixth chances are that one. the sixth take, which is where they peaked. I told this story to uh, Fred Zinneman when I was working on Julia and he was a, at 70 years old at the time and very traditional, low, uh, low amount of footage. And Francis Uh, in The Conversation and and other films would, if if the actors went off, he would keep going and maybe sometimes print or or shoot 15, 20 takes. And his justification of that was they're good and then they get confused and we just keep going. And out of boredom, they come up with something unique, and I want to get that unique thing. So with digital, none of that really applies. There's all kinds of different methodology that different directors use, but in, uh, in my experience, almost everything gets printed. Uh, you have to cope with everything, but they indicate that there are different streams, that that was the, the good, takes, and this is the mm-hmm. not-so-good takes, but they get printed, and the editor has to deal with them. Whereas in film, those takes would just not get printed, and so you, you would have a clean deck uh, as far as that goes. But the unique thing about digital is the, the idea of resets within a take. So you're, okay, action, you're going along, and then at a certain point the director will say okay, keep to, keep rolling, but go back two lines and start again from there and make it a little angrier. And so you then you'd go forward to the line 10 and then you'd do the same thing. you go back to line eight and then move forward. So it's kind of like cross-country skiing across <laughs> the scene. Great analogy. And the most number of setups that I've had, uh, resets that I've coped with was around I don't know, mid 30s, 32 oh different gosh. things, and that's difficult to keep track of. I, I think sure. there's technology now that that copes with that, but this was five or six years ago.
0: Got it. The uh, conversation had a very conservative use of close-ups. I thought, is that something that you can remember or feel like that's true, or just in your style of editing?
1: Yeah, I, I think I think so. It um, it it went through different uh, kind of geological epics in the shooting. The The conversation itself is documentary as we were talking. And nobody really knew what the cameras were gonna get. And what Francis was after was serendipitous uh, moments between the actors and the actors relative to the background mm-hmm. people. And the people were not, they were just ordinary people. They weren't even extras. So it was, the, the, the actors were in the world of reality, which added this wild card aspect to it all. Then the section where Gene Hackman is uh, analyzing the tapes is very two-dimensional. It's just a close-up of him, and that's uh, you know, kind of not a super mm-hmm. thing, but a medium close-up. Um, and then looking at just a kind of flat image of the tape recorder and the, the VU meters and the knobs. And then there is the three-dimensional space of the party where Gene Hackman is uh, invites everyone back to his laboratory and does a, they have a little party, and that's staged in a deep space. So it's, uh, it's not abnormally mm-hmm. free of close-ups, but it certainly isn't over over close up <laughs> With some
0: inexperienced editors I've seen, they tend to go to a close-up right away, or they use them right. a lot, and there's an overuse of them, and then that removes their power. And so I right, thought exactly. that in your case, you were very careful about where you chose to put those close-ups.
1: Right, and this was, when I was editing Julia, uh, the assistant, my assistant editor had worked with Fred Zinneman before, this is the first time I had worked with him, and he made a point, kind of whispering to me, don't go to close-ups too soon, because <laughs> Mr. Z, which is what he everyone called him, he hates that, for exactly the reason you pointed out, that the close-up is kind of the, the nuclear button of a scene. When you go to a close-up, you want it to mean something. And, of course, that makes it difficult to, uh, if, if you have matching problems in a wider shot, then you, where do you go? And I, I remember after the scene in Julia where uh, they're at Alberts, which is this cafe, and so it's a scene between Jane Fonda and Vanessa Redgrave, and uh, this was a real cafe uh, in Strasbourg. and the script supervisor, after daily, she said, it's a nightmare of mismatching you're going to have your hands full with this one. And, uh, you know, I I found a way to cope with it. But, you know, their hands were not always in the same position when they said a line. And I wanted to hold off using the big close-ups until the apex moments of the scene. So you have to choose your moments carefully. And so, I mean, films are full of mismatches. It's just like any magic trick. It's how visible those moments are or are not for the audience.
0: Uh, you mentioned uh, Fred's, you know, don't go to close-ups too early comment. In uh, I think the conversation you talked about your preference to uh, cut before action begins, not mid-action. I don't know whether you still do that anymore, but that's sure. in the book. Yeah. Do you find that certain directors tell you I love cutting in mid-action mid and then therefore you have to change or do you have to have a, that discussion that you don't like to do it and here's why?
1: The, the only time that's happened was with Brad Bird on Tomorrowland. Otherwise, nobody's ever mentioned it to me.
0: Well, not that specific thing, but uh, directors, like you said, Zinneman saying, or the assistant saying, he doesn't like close-ups too early. Directors do have preferences for certain things, right. when you cut to a close up, when you cut in
1: action. yeah, yeah. Um, With Brad I think it was because he's an animator and animators ha- are by nature, they think in shots and how do you join one shot to the other? Almost uh, naturally they think of, of ending the shot with an action with which they will join up to the next shot. So the fact that I didn't do that got his attention and he didn't he wanted always to have matching action and tried to explain sometimes what I was after but he wasn't you know that didn't really interest him. Yeah. And we're in the job of servicing our director, right? My my rule of thumb uh, especially if it's if it's an idea that you really believe is important for the film is uh, to Say your idea, that's what you're being paid for is to contribute ideas, not just sit there and you know, you tell pass. me what to do. Um, if the director doesn't like it and you still really think it's important, wait a while and then find a good opportunity to say once again, you know that thing we were talking about last week, now that we've moved the scene from hmm, maybe we could, and if the director says no, you, okay. If it's really important to you, try it a third time. If the director still says, I don't wanna do that, then shut up because you don't wanna become a pest. On the other hand, if something is really important to you, find a diplomatic way to uh, get the idea across and everyone has different methodologies for that. Um, Let's talk about Particle Fever. I
0: love this documentary, I love the cut as Nima finishes erasing a chalkboard, then there's a big slash on the board and that motivates the cut to the right. next, I don't know if you remember that. And I thought of, um, in the blink of an eye, your theory that the the shot has a life and after a certain moment you you need to go to the next shot. Right. Was that one of those instances?
1: Yeah, I think so. I mean, I'm, I'm, I think I know the shot you're talking about. It's. Uh, And it just—it's the the closest analogy is what happens in music with a, that that gesture was kind of like the blare of a trombone or something. And (laughs) at the moment, what you generally want to do is cut just before it overstays its welcome. If somebody's moving towards a door and about to go through the door, unless you're making the point of the the door itself, you don't let them go through and and cut, but you don't want to cut too soon either. So you have to feel the moment where uh, it is inevitable that the person will go through the door and not do a Columbo, which is to stop and turn and (laughs) say something else. It's kind of like the moment uh, when a plane is taking off, the moment where the wheels are up. You know, you've run out of runway and you have to take off. And that's the moment of the cut.
0: To go back to the conversation, and I don't know whether this is something you remember specifically, but I thought that there were, and maybe it was your first editing, uh, numerous times that there were empty frames either at the beginning or the end of the shot. Not that that didn't mean the shot was over, but that they were absent of people.
1: Well, that was part of the aesthetic of the film in that Francis wanted this unsettling Aspect sort of the DNA of video surveillance to infect the visual style of the film as if There wasn't somebody behind the camera and that there was a motion detector attached to a a servo motor And as long as the actor is moving in the shot You hold if the actor leaves You wait wait It's been programmed and if he doesn't come back in the shot then you go looking for him. He exited left, so I will pan left and and do it very robotically. It mm. it doesn't have those pans don't have a human behind them. They they are, but the the operator was told to make it look artificial. Like a servo. Yeah. It's really interesting. So that that was you see that throughout the film, particularly at the beginning when Harry's in his apartment.
0: Uh Back to the documentary again, um, there's lots of pre I noticed. What does a pre get you to, to you know, start audio from the next scene bef- while you're still on the previous scene or vice versa?
1: It's a way of blowing a little smoke across the moment of the cut in that the moment that the new sound enters in, you're telling the audience, can you make sense of this? and so you alert the audience to a, a new development and then again you have to judge the right moment then at the right moment you cut to the reality which is producing that that sound whatever it is it's um, the it's the opposite of what in screenplays is called a smash cut smash cut you just you want to hit with full force at the moment of the cut mm-hmm. whereas a prelap is it's also a way of bleeding some of the DNA of the incoming shot into the outgoing shot and Mm. so you're making sometimes uh, a poetic simile between what is this person thinking you end on a close up and you hear a line of dialogue and you're looking at the face and somebody's I'm just inventing now Mm -hmm. somebody says what did he mean cut and now you're It's the girl, and she said, I told you to go to the store before dinner or something. (laughs) But by implication, what did he mean is something that the character in the outgoing shot is thinking or imaginatively hearing.
0: There's a series of jump cuts in the documentary of guys watching, reloading Mac browsers to watch the collisions. Do you remember building that? Mm -hmm. And you did this great little montage of Mm -hmm. jump cuts between people...
1: Refreshing their browsers. Right. Yeah, yeah. I mean, this was an unscripted documentary. Mm-hmm. It was shot over a six or seven year period as the Large Hadron Collider was being built. And we had access not only to the footage that Mark Levinson directed himself, but all of the archival footage that CERN uh, had collected in the all of the years of their existence since the late 1940s. So there were about 500 hours of material that, that we had access to. At a certain point in the evolution of a documentary like Particle Fever or like Coup 53, the decisions that you make editorially with the director are, I would say, almost identical with what you were dealing with in a fiction film. The film is, is perhaps still too long, but you're trying to compress it and to tell the story in the most clear and emotionally engaging way that you can do it in the shortest amount of time. And you will make discoveries on how to do that. Getting to that point, though, is very different because with a fiction film that is shot with multiple takes, You have, obviously, a script, and editorially you have an abundance of interpretation and a paucity of events, meaning the only events are what's in the screenplay. The screenplay may have, I don't know, say 125 scenes. You don't have another 125 scenes that you can go to. What you have is what's in the screenplay, but you have many different interpretations, some of them with small differences, others with large differences in performance. Mm -hmm. And for a scene, the editor might have 50 different line readings of a line of dialogue from seven or eight different camera positions. And how do you thread that needle is the challenge. If that line of dialogue is said with that attitude, what's the best interpretation of the next line of dialogue? And should we be on the person who's speaking? Or should we be on somebody listening to the per- You know, all mm-hmm. of those kind of questions. Whereas it, the opposite is happening in a documentary. You have a paucity of interpretation. Things generally only happen once. But you have a multiplicity of events because you could have five or six hundred scenes potential for a documentary that you squeeze out of 500 hours of material. And that's the question is, what scenes are we going to, what are the building blocks of the film? So you are writing the story basically, deciding those questions. And then because you only have one line reading of that line of dialogue, you have to find a way to make that particular line reading in the context of the larger film uh, work at the optimum uh, value that it can achieve and you try to minimize the, what, it, what seem like mistakes and maximize the potential of everything else.
0: We'll return in a moment with more from my discussion with Walter Merch. Art of the Cut is brought to you by Studio Network Solutions, helping video teams in over 70 countries transform the way they store, share, and organize content. Studio Network Solutions combines state-of-the-art shared storage hardware with intuitive media management software and powerful integrations for Adobe Premiere Pro DaVinci Resolve, Avid, and Final Cut Pro 10. Visit StudioNetworkSolutions.com and start creating amazing content faster. Let's face it, we always need more storage for our media and projects, but sometimes having storage isn't enough because the more you have, the harder it is to find your files. Studio Network Solutions understands that. That's why their EVO shared storage servers provide industry-leading performance for real-time 4K and even 8K editing and also include an entire suite of features designed to help you organize and manage your media. Every system comes with built-in software so you can search, tag, and preview all your storage, backup tools so you always know your media and projects are protected, and integrations for Premiere Pro, DaVinci Resolve, Avid, Final Cut Pro 10, all included for free with your EVO shared storage server. As a special offer for my listeners, you can get 10% off of a new EVO system by going to studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and signing up for an online demo. If you're tired of rummaging through a mountain of drives to find your files, it's time to give your storage an upgrade. So before you add another drive to the pile, visit studionetworksolutions.com slash AOTC and discover a better way to store, share, and organize your media. We now return to my discussion with Walter Murch. Uh, another scene that I loved in Particle Fever was almost the opposite of what your point was about you only take a scene so far, and then once it's expired, it's use, then you go right. away. And there's a great scene where the scene ends with a guy missing his exit. Do you remember? All right. That? Yeah. <laughs> it's almost... Yeah. No, obviously, it's a very funny moment. It's a great place to end, but you'd think... Right. We don't need to have the guy miss his
1: exit, but it, right. you know, yeah. I mean, it's a, it's a literally it's, he 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 missed the door that he was supposed to go through, <laughs> and we stay on him because it's a character moment. It's it's the classic absent-minded professor. Here's somebody who's so excited about finally getting to see the Higgs boson announcement that he misses his exit, <laughs> uh, and this you know this was not this was real. It wasn't concocted. That was the the camera person on that shot was uh, David's wife and so she was just there and it really happened. (laughs) That's very funny. So those are the nice spontaneous moments that you want to make the most of to get the best character revelation and just you know it's just it's a light moment at a kind of heavy period of the film where it's finally coming to fruition, everything.
0: That's an interesting thing to talk a little bit about is trying to regulate the tone of a documentary so that you aren't at 11 or at zero or right.
1: sad or happy too long. Yeah, it's, it's uh, th- these are sort of the what you might call the peristaltic motions of digestion of yeah. the audience. Uh, you are in a sense almost force feeding the audience because they can't control the speed of the film. And if you feed people too fast, they feel like the stuff is being rammed down their throat and they're gonna choke. And it's at that point that they either check out of the film or actually get up and leave. So you need to have these moments where the, the digestive tract kind of relaxes for a moment and, and you, you can um, have a moment to digest uh, what, what you've been fed and humor, uh, such as it is, uh, is, is a very good um, digestive agent. Mm-hmm. It, it indicates to the audience that the filmmakers are kind of on their side without being overt about it. It's saying, we know you need a break right now and so we're gonna give this to you. And, uh, you know, you'll, you'll see moments of that in Coup 53, which is also, it's a heavy film because of what, what the subject matter is, but there are light moments within it. And we knew that from the beginning. We had, when we did the card structure for the film, we had a purple card that just had the moment grace on it, like a grace note in music. And we would just al- almost arbitrarily put these things here in speculative moments. Not that all of them wind up at exactly that place, but it just—it was a reminder to us, Tagi and me, that this was important. Otherwise, it gets really too dense.
0: And what ended up um, filling in those filler card moments of grace?
1: Moments of uh, where there's just no dialogue and thoughtfulness. Uh, Something very heavy has happened and we're just looking at somebody's close-up and we just stay there, Um, things like that. Got it. Yeah, a lot of times I've talked to other editors about the use
0: of shoe leather, which of course is a derogatory term for us editors. But a lot of times, sometimes it's that shoe leather that's that moment of like, oh, you know, the the parent has died or the child has died and then there's a little road trip and before the next thing happens. So you have, the audience has a moment to absorb
1: that. Yeah, Does if you look at uh, sea anemones, you you see the anemone opening up and then it's waiting for something to float by. So a little fish comes by and it grabs the fish and then it closes and it's now digesting the fish. And when it's digested, it opens up again. And the trick with a film is that the, the logic component of a film and the emotional component of the film are sometimes on different tracks and they have different moments of digestion. <laughs> sometimes you can digest an emotion while you're receiving information. Um, the danger is trying to load up both of them at the same time. So you have to kind of alternate how you feed the information. The, uh, let's talk about Romeo's bleeding. So
0: there's a great extended reaction shot as Jack finds out that Nick Gazzaro got popped. And it's not played on the guy telling the story, but on the guy realizing that what he did caused the story to happen, do you remember that?
1: That was a long time ago, that film, (laughs) Um, I think I know what you're talking about, I I should say I was not the original editor on that film, this was one of the the reasons for looking at it and thinking about it is that uh, there got to be a traffic uh, jam of conflict between the director, the producer, and the author mm. of the film, and the editor got caught in the middle of that, and so they, they shut down the film. And I was at loose ends at the time, and I was intrigued by the script. Uh, I liked Peter Medak, the director. I hadn't worked with him before, but, so I, I came on to a film that had already been assembled and that was in some kind of trouble. Mm-hmm. Um, so I had to identify what the trouble was, and uh, then uh, find a solution for it and calm everything down. Uh,
0: the talented Mr. Ripley, uh, talk to me about the dynamics of the climactic scene on the boat. This is the murder. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, it it was it was first of all a difficult scene to shoot because of any time you're shooting on the ocean, they had weather problems. The sun on one day, no sun on the other. And then the hit itself is a complicated thing to pull off where you know, somebody's head is bashed in with an oar, um, makeup wise and everything. So it, it um, you, you try in that scene to make everything as intense as possible. And there's multiple agendas going on. Uh, this is the revelation where Matt Damon reveals to Jude Law that in fact he wants to live together with Jude Uh, and this is crazy from Jude's point of view and so that whole dynamic works out and then the the murder itself comes out of the the rage and anger that uh, uh, Jude feels and that he pulls out of uh, Matt. So you just try to make it as intense as as possible, and but then you want to. This is one of those grace moments at the end. You want to kind of find a way to relax the scene um, and find some sort of poetry in the aftermath of the violence. As horrible as that poetry is, poetry can be horrible. But rather than uh, violence, the question is now what. Now what's going to happen? So the anemone releases, right? Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. Um, And
1: structurally,
0: I don't know. In that film, that scene happens almost perfectly in the middle of the of the movie. Do you remember trying to have it land like that, or was was the structure already set like that? No,
1: that that was how it was in the screenplay. You know, it 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 varied perhaps five or maybe. one way or the other, depending on the overall structure. Anthony's first assemblies are always very long. Talented Mr. Ripley was four and a half hours long, and so you have to find a way to basically cut two hours out of the film to get it down to a releasable length. And that the fact that it is in the middle and the fact that Jude is so charismatic uh, is a, it's a, a problem for the film because, wait a minute, the, that guy, I loved looking at that guy and now he's dead. And we're left with Matt. I mean, Matt's a wonderful actor, but the, Ripley is a kind of creepy guy. And the whole film, like the conversation, is told strictly from Ripley's point of view. It's a single point of view film, which is a technique that both Francis and Anthony used, if you're making a film about somebody who is not uh, the normal kind of hero of a film, then making the film to be a single point of view is is a good technique because in a sense you're turning the audience into kind of a Stockholm syndrome. They have no alternative. There's no moment where two of the other actors go off and discuss Ripley or discuss Harry Call. So you never have any relief. Everything you're looking at is either Ripley or something that Ripley is looking at. If you're stuck on a desert island with one other person. Right, in a, in a <laughs> sense. So after Jude dies, uh, not only are you still in this single point of view world, but Jude is gone. <laughs> So it, 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 uh, you know, the film recovers from that, but it, it is a moment in the film where the audience has to kind of deal with that. It, it, in miniature, it's sort of like the, the thing that Hitchcock did in Psycho, where Janet Lee is killed 40 minutes into the film. It's not exactly the halfway point, but it, it's almost. You know, mm-hmm. It's, it's uh, Psycho is, I forget, 100, 100 minutes long. So it, it's a similar kind of thing. One more
0: question about uh, Talented Mr. Ripley. Talk about the cut, and if you can remember this, talk about the cut from when Peter Smith Kingsley was describing Tom Ripley's characteristics to Tom, then the cut to him walking back in the stateroom as the audio of Peter continues. Do you remember? Right. Is that too specific? Ooh, yeah, custom? I mean the,
1: the scene as shot went all the way through killing Peter and after Peter is strangled. Uh, the shot tilted up to the the porthole window, and it kind of then it went out the window, and uh, that was the end of the film. And for various reasons, that did not work. I mean, it, it was shot perfectly well, but emotionally, it was hard for people to deal with. And so that that flash forward while keeping the dialogue in the past was something that I came up with one night to help, to try to help that moment. So that we, we see the two guys together and we see uh, Ripley, Matt, in some kind of emotional, very complex emotions. He's distressed, but he's trying with his voice to be happy and we're looking at his face and at the same time he's tightening a cord around his hand, which is kind of an ominous thing to see, and then you cut to a doorway and he comes, Matt comes in the door and we're still hearing the dialogue as a continuous, as a piece of continuity. And then you realize what happens. So you, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's a post-lap rather than a pre-lap. Mm-hmm. And it's devastating, but not ev- overtly so, because you don't actually see the murder itself. And it takes you a while to catch up with what the, what the hell just happened, what's happening. And that uh, both softens and in some strange way intensifies the moment because you're looking at now, on the other side of that cut, R- Ripley just killed the one person in his life, who seemed to understand and love him for who he was, and because of this fluke uh, of, of being Meredith, uh, he had to kill Peter. So it, um, it, it was a very complex thing.
0: Uh, I'm really interested in the fa- in those instances where you think there's so much effort and so much talent in writing a script, as you know. Um, so much development process and yet all the answers don't happen with that script. There's something, it looks like the, the answer was there, that they were going to go out this
1: window and right. it didn't work. And it's fascinating to me that, that it doesn't. Yeah, and that's one of the great mysteries of, of writing a good screenplay, is that uh, the screenplay both has to command the attention and emotions of the reader and be logical within a certain framework, but exciting and uh, you can't quite predict what's going to happen and when it happens that seems to be the right thing. And yet, the screenplay has to somehow, in its DNA, acknowledge the fact that um, it doesn't have all the answers, but it has to provide the raw material for answers at a different, whole different level of creativity, which is not with words on paper, but with images and sound in linear time in the editing room. Mm-hmm. And that's the, you know, you really can't put your finger on that, but that's what a, what a really great screenplay is, is almost indifferent to what happens to it. Go ahead, yeah. It, it's like those people who uh, make animals out of uh, twisting balloons and you can make a giraffe and then the appeal is, within a few seconds, the man does something and the giraffe becomes an elephant. But it's still the same balloon. And that, in a sense, that's the screenplay is the balloon that is able to manifest itself as a giraffe or an elephant and kind of not care. The, the, the dangerous thing is, you know, in a paradoxical way, the screenplay that is perfect but has to be exactly the way it is to be perfect. And the world just isn't that way, you know. It's, it's the world is a whole mixture of different uh, strengths and weaknesses. Nobody expected uh, Jude Law to be as charismatic as he was. You know, we, we, just, we knew he was a good actor, but we just didn't know what was really going to happen. And very different from uh, the, the first Ripley film with Alan Dallon. That character, the Jude's character, is not especially attractive. It's Alan Dallon who is the beautiful one. Uh, and in a sense, what Anthony did in casting is he flipped the relationship there. Flip the script. And so you have, to, you have to cope with that. When you have a much longer
0: shot, like most shots are relatively short, you know, right. sometimes they're 60 seconds, 90 seconds. Right. Does the potential of that edit point keep growing at every moment until you make that edit? Is, yeah. is, is uh, it, yes. Is, that, is it more dangerous to, to have to walk that tight wire?
1: I like to say that the editor is making 24 decisions a second, but you're saying no, no no, no 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 yes. and it's determining where that yes is. If the shot is going to be long and can endure, so it has to be well written and well acted and have a complex evolution within the shot to allow you to have it last for a minute or sometimes two minutes as a single shot, um, it will have its own internal dynamics built into it. And so that's part of the, the intended architecture of the movie. This is something, if, if the director is going to do that, this is what they have, they put a lot of horsepower into that decision. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's not really... on. Un- under those circumstances it's not up to the editor to say i want to cut this shot at the midway point unless something disastrous happened in the shooting and you have to then figure out what you're going to do so you you it, it's like the 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 scene is like the sp- has its own spine and each of these moments is like a vertebra in the spine mm-hmm. and you're just watching it go from vertebra to vertebra and then toward the coccyx, toward the mm-hmm. end of it, there you do have to make a decision. Shall we let it go all the way? Or is there a can we cut a little sooner than was originally intended? This is something you'll only find out when you put the whole film together and see that undigested single shot and how it works within the context of the, of the whole film. In the blink of an eye, I think you described it as, as branches. You know
0: that a film, the scene has a branch and you could cut here, right. you could also let it go to, you can't cut kind of in between the branches, but you, you can cut at this point. You Yeah, can also I cut mean that, that would
1: apply point. to more like your question of the, a more ordinary shot. But something that, a master shot that lasts for a long time is something that is its own unique thing that the director and the actors have worked with. And they're usually in those shots is not a lot of extra coverage because you're just going to decide this is what we're going to do. And so whether there may not be anything you can cut to in that case. In general, what makes you want to play a scene uh,
0: on a reaction shot, specifically quite a bit of a scene on a reaction? Mm
1: -hmm. The quality of the acting, I guess. And you'll feel this when you watch dailies uh, or you'll you'll see the beginning of this in dailies and sometimes it's intended sometimes it's just something that happens and um, that also will depend on the character that you're staying on has to have their own arc within the film is this a moment that that character realizes something profound about his relationship with the other characters, that's gonna change everything. So that's a reason to stay on that person.
0: That's yeah, so interesting. I just interviewed Ann McCabe, who cut Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood, or A Beautiful Day in the Neighborhood. Right. And she was talking about, I'm empathetic, so I wanna know, what does Walter think about Steve asking that question? So I wanna be on Walter, but you're putting it in the context, which can be a reason, right? right. But you're putting sure, it in the context sure. of story, Yeah. You know, does that person have a reason later on in the story that you need to know this moment? Or acting, performance, this is such a great performance by him. I want to be on him because he's so much stronger than this other person. Right.
1: Imagine yourself, not in a film, but just in life, you're sitting with two other people and they're having a conversation. Somebody will talk. First person will talk. Then the second person will talk. A, B, A, B. But you will not look at the person who's talking, and then when they stop talking, you look to B, and when they stop talking, you look back to A. That's, in the blink of an eye, that's what I call dragnet cutting, yeah. where we're just, we're on the person talking, and when the person stops talking, we cut to the other person who then talks. But in reality, the f- it's a much more fluid thing, where you are listening, and when you get the idea of what the first person is saying, they're still talking, but you understand their point, Now what you really have to do is look at the other person to see what they think of what this first person is still saying. Mm. So that's a post lap and then you might stay on person B while person A starts talking. But that's the normal kind of choreography of of a normal dialogue scene, whereas here we're talking about something slightly different.
0: In The Godfather, for which you did sound design, there's a great scene with Michael Corleone when he seeks revenge against a rival in an Italian restaurant. The music is held back until after the climax, and sound design carries the scene. And there's sirens or something.
1: It's it's an elevated train. An elevated train, yeah. It's the rumble of an elevated train that comes and goes. It's just something in the neighborhood. The script was not written with that in mind, but Francis wanted to hold the music off until after the murder, and, and interestingly, that that moment after the murder was where the film was going to have an intermission. Godfather is the first long film not to have an intermission. But w- when we were working on it, it, it was going to have an intermission. Hmm. This is 1974, 3, uh, 2, <laughs> Um <laughs> So Francis and Nino had designed a big operatic moment there in music and Francis didn't want to dilute that by having music underneath the restaurant scene. And yet the scene is, you know, it's a fairly long scene and perhaps half of it is in Italian with no subtitles which is a risky thing to do because it throws the audience back to watching body language and voice tone to figure out what's going on unless they understand Italian. Uh, So it seemed to need something to underpin the the counter-currents underneath the scene. And that's where I had the idea of using the elevated train sound because I grew up in New York not far from where that restaurant was supposed to be. And I knew that that part of the Bronx was a rat's nest of various uh, lines of the elevated train system.
0: And it's great emotionally, right? I mean, you've, it's like the tea kettle, you know, right. in so many scenes in movies, right. the ele- as the tension goes yeah. up, there's... <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. We'll wrap it up there for this week and save my follow-up questions about In the Blink of an Eye and the Conversations for a later Art of the Cut podcast. For more editing wisdom from more than 200 of the world's top editors, check out provideocoalition.com or read my book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors for a topic-driven, curated experience. And be sure to check out my other podcast, Voices from Sundance, with the editors of the latest buzzworthy indie films. Thanks again to my guest, Walter Merch, ACE. And keep an eye out for more upcoming podcasts with Walter in the coming weeks. I'm Steve Hallfish. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at, at Hallfish. Also subscribe to this podcast and make sure to tell a filmmaking or film-loving friend.